And for the 22nd time, we hear that theme song, signifying the beginning of the steam room, episode 22, uh, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ernie Johnson, Charles Barkley, episode 22, Chuckster. And they say, I told you, Ernie, they said we were only going to last like Kenneth's show lasted like seven episodes. Y'all canceled it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Meet the steam room is what we should call this. So we, yeah, so we, we've gone for 22 now. And, uh, and this promises to be a really good one, if I must say so myself, because uh, CNN commentator Van Jones is going to join us. Much to talk about with him. Andre Iguodala uh, will join us to talk about what the NBA is up to and what players are thinking these days. So look forward to both of those conversations. And I always look forward to this first segment, which is Chuck's favorite phrase, which is, first of all. First of all, you know you have a lot of money when you get hunting nut Cheerios. I've had the regular Cheerios. First of all, you know anybody ride a motorcycle who makes millions of dollars is an idiot. First of all, zero plus zero is zero. Well, I'm talking to my NBA brethren today. I want them to have some compassion for Adam Silver. We all been blessed to make a great living because of the NBA. And I thank God for basketball coming to my life. It changed the whole trajectory of my life. But I want to talk to the NBA players today and ask them to do Adam Silver a solid. First of all, he's been an amazing man as a person, but he's been a great commissioner. When he took over for David Stern, he got dropped the Darnold Sterling's fiasco. He didn't suspend him. He banned him for life. The players actually did not think he was going, they thought he was just going to suspend him. Then the players said, hey, we don't want to play back-to-backs anymore. Adam Silver says, it's inconvenient because we don't get to arenas all the time we want, but I'll make it work. He has done everything the players have asked of him. He let us say anything we want to on social media. He stands behind us on, on every cause. I would just ask the players to do Adam a solid and say, hey, you know what? It's a lot of stuff going on right now. A lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people are never going to get their jobs back. Adam Silver has been there for us. Let's be there for him. Yeah, it's probably going to suck being in a bubble. We're going to have to make some hard sacrifices. You know, I see your family when you want to. You're going to probably get tested quite a bit. Ask my NBA friends to do him a solid. He's actually trying to run a business. This is a business. We're partners with him at Turner. ESPN is partners. Let's be frankly and honestly, TNT and ESPN are the reason all these players make all this money. Not because they're great players. As a matter of fact, some of them can't play dead or making $10, $15 million a year. <laughs> but I asked them to look at the, the big picture and say, you know what, Adam's been there for us. Let's like, okay, yeah, it's going to suck. Uh, I, it's going to be, it's going to suck being without fans. I think sometimes we just, you get rich and famous and you get all this power. You don't have uh, sensibilities to like, to look at the big picture. And I'm asking my, the cooler heads of the NBA we got some great leaders in Kyrie, not Kyrie, not Kyrie, not Kyrie. Let me say that three times. Chris Paul, 
LeBron James, <laughs> Russell Westbrook, Giannis. We got some great leaders in the NBA. And it's time for those guys to step up and say, guys, Adam has always been there for us. Let's do him a solid one time. And that's my first of all. Would you understand, Chuck, if somebody had health concerns and didn't want to go? Or are you just saying, hey, look, let them know by June 24th, like they're supposed to, that you're, that you're in or out? Um, and I know that, look, when we first discussed this long time ago, one of your first things was, man, you're asking people to spend a lot of time away from their loved ones in, you know, in, a, in this area. So, you know, you did kind of point that out on the first time we talked about it was, man, you're asking a lot. But I think what the commissioner said, you know, a couple of things. He said, look, I, I know this isn't an ideal situation. I know this is, this is tough. But the other word was sacrifice. That's what we're asking. You're asking players to do. That's what the commissioner is asking players to do. But I, I just wanted to point that other part out because I, I yeah. do know that you see what, what some of those players are saying. Like, man, that's a long time. Uh, and I understand. Uh, listen, I understand they're going to be away from their families. I understand that they got health concerns. Those are legitimate. You know, Ernie, and listen, you talk about sacrifice. That's a small sacrifice when you're making millions of dollars. You know what a sacrifice is? All these people out here who have lost their jobs, lost their restaurants, they're never going to get back. Now they're trying to open these restaurants up with one-third capacity, which you know that ain't going to work. You can't run a restaurant only having one-third of your seats full, only having five or six tables. Now that's, that's sacrifice. That's, that's going to be the end of their livelihood. We're going to play basketball again at some point. I'm just asking the players, listen, man, this man has been there for you guys in every scenario possible. Just try to do him a solid. That's all I'm asking. And that was, first of all, authored as always by Charles Barkley. We'll talk more about the points that uh, you were making, Chuck, when we talk to uh, Andre Iguodala in this edition of the Steam Room. He's the first VP of the National Basketball Players Association. He'll give us a great insight into uh, what the players are thinking as we approach the time that uh, the play could resume in the NBA. And also ahead, CNN commentator Van Jones. Plenty to talk to Van about. You're listening to The Steam Room. We appreciate that. We'll be right back. And the door to The Steam Room opens and another guest is here. And again, if you don't see the, see the signs on the wall, please uh, keep your towel on as you guest in the steam room. Andre Iguodala, we really appreciate you stopping by. And uh, uh, you're in Miami, and I can only assume it must be raining like crazy f- for you to be sitting in there and not on the golf course. Yeah, the, the weather's, I didn't understand what hurricane season meant. Apparently, hurricane season is like six months. Yeah. Five months. I had no idea. It's been detrimental to my golf game. I thought it would do the thought it would help, but it, it hasn't. <laughs> we appreciate you stopping by, man. We got a lot to talk about with the NBA. Chuckster, why don't you fire away with the first one? What's been the hardest part for the quarantine for you? I think being a father and having kids uh, just getting their schedule in. And but I've been away from them, so it's just making sure I get in contact with them, making sure I'm helping my wife out remotely, 
Uh, I think most people are struggling with uh, with their kids. But for me, like I've actually been as productive as I've ever been in life, to be honest, because like now you you don't have an excuse why you're not getting certain things done in terms of improving yourself like individually. It's actually helped me. So I, I've read more than I've ever read. I'm up to date on, you know, my stocks, uh, all my readings, I'm doing a lot of VC work. So I've been in touch with like a lot of entrepreneurs taking pictures with companies. So I've been like just taking advantage of the situation. One of those stock tips you gave a couple of years ago uh, is the very format we're talking on right now. You were early on Zoom, weren't you? It's a nice hat I have on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've uh, had a chance to meet the uh, CEO, Eric Wan, and we have a pretty good relationship. And, you know, just something that's uh, grown to some beautiful people have uh, turned it into a verb now. You know, they, they don't say, are you video conferencing? They say you're Zooming. And uh, that's when you see when something has, you know, crossed that, you know, got to that plateau or got to that level of, uh, of, of excellence, it's going to keep going. So now let's talk some basketball. Where's your mindset as far as basketball is concerned? Well, I think it's just kind of been like a perfect storm in terms of a lot of things that have been happening. When you go back and you look at when, then, when COVID first hit and we shut down the season, it was, you know, you heard Adam Silver say, you know, the, the country can look or the environment can look totally different in one month. And when you got out of a month or two and you're looking to go back to work and it's a different type of atmosphere, but you know, okay, we're going to a bubble. What would that look like? Then you get hit with another, you know, sort of haymaker. And I wouldn't even say another haymaker because we've been getting hit with it, you know, for 400 years. You look at the social injustices and things that have been happening within our community that others have seemed to, you know, now just becoming aware of, although we've all been aware of it and we've seen it go on, you know, since we've been in existence in the country. So those two things have really just uh, been a heavy weight, a heavy burden on a lot of, the, uh, a lot of just humans, you know, I wouldn't just say African-Americans because I feel like other people are feeling our pain finally. And uh, it's just now for us to time for us to put action behind it and ways we can help, shed more light on, on, on the situation and take the opportunities from that and, and, and make it all better. Personally, are you all in for a return to Orlando or is there any hesitancy on your part, any concerns? You know, I sit on the board with our union. So for me, it's, it's my duty to set aside any personal preferences or any personal opinions to uh, be there to support, you know, all the players. And for me, if there's a concern, it's, you know, you saw the Orlando airport, a lot of their employees. Positive tests. Yeah, they have positive tests. Uh, so you think about that and, you know, people moving in and out that are working around Disney. You know, I, I think the NBA is trying to do the best they can to ensure the safety of the players. That's the number one important thing when we go down there is, you know. But I also look at it as, can we make it a sacrifice? You know, we say, how can we take this opportunity to shed light on a lot of the things that are happening within our community, bring awareness to it, uh, bring more funding to it, uh, let people hear our voices. Uh, what better platform than to have this many NBA players in one place at one time? And we're able to send a message collectively every single day. We have some creative things in place where we can make sure that that happens. And I think this is this is like the perfect platform. When you look at, you know, Juan Carlos and Tommy Smith, you know, they went out there and ran. You know, had they been with their black fists and raising them and back in Oakland instead of, you know, in that grand stage at the Olympics, their message 
wouldn't have, would not have resonated the way that it had. And, you know, you look at Colin Kaepernick and, you know, he's been interviewed uh, as the starting quarterback for a team that goes to the Super Bowl when he's in his prime. And he's able to send that message from that platform. You know, historically now, they're always going to talk about him, but he was able to do it on that specific platform. And we have the same platform to uh, make sure our voices are heard and let that message resonate with the rest of those in the country. Uh, we just have to make, I look at it as we have to make a sacrifice. You know, maybe we go down there and, you know, that quarantine is going to be different. You know, that bubble is going to be a different type of life for us because we worked so hard to build this lifestyle that we built. You know, maybe we take a sacrifice for two or three months to go down there and, and just figure it out. But at the same time, the bigger picture, uh, we make a difference. First of all, not playing, I think, is just not a good idea. Because out of sight, out of mind, it's not going to work. I mean, if, if people think that if these guys don't play, they're making a statement. I disagree with that. They won't be on TV. They, hey, the media's not going to follow these guys around at home. I think being in that bubble will give you a greater platform, number one. But also, I just asked the players, man, let's do Adam Silver a solid. Because he's trying to run a business. Uh, it's been a very difficult year for for everybody financially. Not just not just not just the NBA. I mean, everybody in life is struggling financially because of the pandemic. And I made a plea to the players, like, "Hey guys, yeah, it's probably gonna suck being in the bubble, but you know what? Adam's trying to run a business. He's always taking care of us. Let's do him this one solid and just gut it out for a couple months." I think I think my my views are in line with just gutting it out. You know, because if anything. You know, I go always go back to what a lot of guys have been talking about, which I understand as well. I always try to take into consideration someone else's point of view. And I think when you have guys that say, it's hard for me to go out there and play basketball when I have these feelings as a black man in this country and these things are happening to us. When I hear that, I understand that. And I think those are good intentions. They're not saying, I don't want to play basketball because I want to check and I just want to relax and chill at home. They have a legitimate reason to be, you know, emotionally or, or just mentally fatigued with it, with it all. And I take that in consideration. But at the same time, I say this is the perfect platform for you to express yourself and to do that on a basketball court. And there are creative ways that, like I said before, collectively, we can spread this message that will actually, you know, benefit more for us to actually go out there and play and using this platform. And that's not even taken into consideration you know, uh, just the business side and the partnership. I look at it as a partnership, and I think you got it right, Charles, with what you said about, you know, it's a partnership with Adam, you know, but I will say, you know, we want all the, the governors, you know, the stakeholders to, you know, raise their voices as well, because what I've seen is that, you know, look at all these corporate companies, you look at these Fortune 500 companies, uh, they keep coming to us and they keep asking, you know, what do you want us to do? You know, uh, what should we do? And I always say, don't put it on us, the African-Americans, to solve your diversity and inclusion issues. You got to take it upon yourself to educate yourself, to read books, to go get the content. There's plenty of content. Uh, we had two players on our committee, uh, Anthony Tolliver and Garrett Temple. They had The Great Challenge, which is essentially a, a barrage of content that anyone can go look at, at the history of America and how African-Americans have been treated. You know, uh, Birth of a Nation is one of the movies, 13th, on the 13th Amendment, and Really, slavery wasn't abolished. Uh, there's some great books in there that everyone could read. So 
people had to educate themselves and in turn, non-African-Americans have to educate themselves and then relay those messages to their people so they know these issues that have been occurring for so long and change being made from there. So I say that to say, you know, the, the governorship and the stakeholders, they have a responsibility as well. And I don't think I've heard enough from them in terms of what they're going to do to support their partners, which are the players in helping us with these issues that we have. Because they have, they have an issue with losses that have occurred because the season has been shortened because of the pandemic. And we're coming in partnership with them, helping with all that. Both sides are being helped in that situation because we're the ones going in the bubble. I mean, how many stakeholders are we going to see in the bubble with us? You know, we're taking a lot of the risk, which I'm fine with. It's the partnership and, it's, and, you know, both sides take a risk. They take a risk in the investments. We take risks with our bodies. But at the same time with these social issues with our players, they have responsibilities uh, and it's the right thing to do on both sides, financially, for the brand, everything to raise their voices as well. Dre, how old is Dre Jr.? Uh, he just turned 13. What kind of conversations have you had with him about what we've all been watching over the last month? I got lucky, you know, with the wife and, and the mother she is. He's caught in the middle. You know, I, when, I, when, I, when I did my book, The Six Man, uh, yeah. which didn't have a lot to do with basketball, just, you know, sports, race, culture, you know, talks about being caught in the middle. Because I always did well in the classroom, but I grew up, like, right a block from the projects. So, you know, I was intertwined between those two worlds and trying to fit into both worlds, a classroom full of white kids and then going back home to all black kids, you know, the, 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 you know, the lower class. And his situation is he grows up, he grows up wealthy. Luckily, he's at a diverse school in terms of culture, but at the same time, it's high income family. So he doesn't really understand the struggle. Uh, but my wife has done an incredible job in making sure uh, Tahishi Coates uh, as, as one of the authors that has uh, read throughout of our household and he's read the, the books. I'm probably too brutally honest with him at times, but I just can't figure out any other way to connect in terms of the risk that he, that he has to take every day just being a black man. No, not, not any other thing, but just being a black man. And I have to maneuver in public. Luckily, I've been in situations where I've been put over the, by the cops with him and then I've kind of walked him through how do you handle you know, interacting with the police. You know, I got, I've had a few officers. Majority of the time, officers my, with him have been good interactions. We haven't had any issues, but I had to walk him through. You know, if I'm not Andre Iguodala, it could turn left. You know, the situation can be like this. You know what I'm saying? Your, your name may be this. Some officers may look at it this way. Other officers may look at it another way. You just got to learn how to maneuver. And it's just something about how we have to be so aware of our surroundings and we have to have these spidey senses being African-Americans uh, that people just quite don't understand, understand. And for him to grow up in this environment, he doesn't have to, but I still have to kind of push it to, you never know where you might be one day in life. You, those spidey senses might have to come on. Dre, it's great talking to you. I, and thanks for the insight as the, the first VP of the uh, National Basketball Players Association. Hope to see you. In, I guess in your spare time this week, unless you've already read it, maybe you'll go through those 100 pages of guidelines for the bubble in Orlando. Um, yeah, yeah, I got to get through that. There's some, there's, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you can wait for the video to come out on that one. There's a lot to comprehend in there. Lots of rules, lots of regulations, lots of uh, safety protocols and that kind of thing. I've learned to keep my sanity. It seems like Charles and I have a really good uh, hobby. We, we can keep our sanity. Uh, I, I hear they have three golf courses. Uh, on campus. So 
basketball, <laughs> basketball, golf, I did some reading and connecting with my my, my fellow athletes. Uh, I think I got a good schedule. Uh, I can keep my uh, my brain locked in. Well, I can't wait to see you on the golf course because listen, my game is coming around, and you're like number eight on my hit parade of guys I got to get. I got I got a list of ten guys that I can't wait to beat down in golf. Well, you're I'm like on that eight. list too, right? You're over two. Oh, Ernie, yeah. you're number three on the list. Okay, you're over two against me. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm about a nine handicap, nine ten. And that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a bad handicap. So I, I think I'm safe with Charles. I've seen I've seen him swing a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look directly at it when you're playing with him, and you'll be okay. <laughs> hey, Dre, thanks a lot. We appreciate you, man. Have a great Father's Day. All right. All right. Thanks. You too. Happy Father's Day, bro. I have a Father's Day to you too. Y'all take care. We welcome you back inside the steam room and. Uh, as we like to tell all of the guests who appear in the steam room, please keep the towel on. We have certain <laughs> set of uh, standards here. And so uh, with that in mind, here comes CNN commentator Van Jones. Uh, thank you so much. It's, it's uh, our pleasure to have you. And thank you as a guy who's very busy at this time uh, for making this time for us. We appreciate it, Van. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate everything you guys do to keep the culture moving forward and uh, these important times. We're going to start with a story you broke on Wednesday, and that was a tape that you were able to get on, uh, get a hold of of an interview uh, with Rayshard Brooks, who was the man who was shot to death in the Wendy's parking lot last Friday. And this was an interview done by a group called Reconnect. Uh, a few months ago, talking about uh, the judicial system, talking about the situation with parole and 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 that kind of thing. And we're just going to play a small part of that, and then we'll begin the conversation with Van Jones. I want, you know, things to be bettered, you know, within probation and parole and also monitoring. If you do some things that's wrong, you pay your debts to society. And that's the bottom line. Just feel like some of the system could, you know, look at us as individuals, not just do us as if we are animals. We do have lives, you know. It's just a mistake we made. It's hurting us, but it's hurting our family the most. I feel like it should be a way for you to have some kind of person, like a mentor assigned to you to, you know, keep your track, keep you in the direction you need to be going. But here yet, I'm trying. You know, I'm not the type of person to give up. And again, a matter of months later, um, Richard Brooks uh, was shot to death in Atlanta. I mean, when you listen to that, I mean, and this is exactly as as the CEO of the Reform Alliance, is this not exactly the door you've been trying to break down. You know, I, I appreciate you saying that. I also appreciate you letting him kind of speak uh, from beyond the grave. You know, nobody's perfect. He certainly uh, made mistakes. He was involved in credit card fraud, got popped, um, wound up on on probation. Um, uh, but, you know, the opposite of criminalization is humanization. Everybody has a story. And so it's so important to at least know the story behind uh, you know, the, the, the headline. Um, 
this is not just a policing story. Uh, it's also a probation story. We have this big irony, which is that our police, and I'm from a law enforcement family, nobody has more respect for the cops than I do, but objectively, they have an awful lot of power and often not enough oversight, not enough checks and balances. Ironically, people coming home from prison probably have too much oversight, uh, especially when you talk about somebody on probation, not talking about parole, somebody on probation. But he, why did he run? Uh, why was he acting the way he was acting? If you're on probation and you have any contact with law enforcement at all, even if it's a minor thing, you go back to prison. So he's staring down the barrel of you know, public intoxication, which means he could be in prison for six months to a year. He's just gotten his life back in order. He's got his, he's, you know, he's, got, he's with his uh, kid's mom. He has an apartment. He's, and he's looking down the barrel. Oh my God, I'm drinking in public. I wake up, these cops are here. He panics. Now listen, no excuse for the panic, but you can understand that he's looking down the barrel of losing his liberty, losing everything over something so small uh, and he wound up losing his life. So this is a, this is a, a crash of, of, of a need for police reform and more police restraint, but also a need for probation reform. It just shouldn't be so hard for these guys to get back on their feet. We should be in the homecoming business. Once you pay your debt and you come back home, you're gonna have some restrictions. You're gonna have to be you know, monitored, but the way that we do it, 15 years of probation, 20 years of probation. You got to check in with your, your probation officer, um, driving across town, taking a bus across town to sit there for two hours to have them check a box. But you also have to be at work. But you have, what job is going to let you do that? If you lose your job, you go back to prison. If you miss a meeting, you go back to prison. It's so many catch-22s, a nun could not easily navigate probation. People go back to prison for technical violations, having committed no new crimes. They just can't keep up with all these restrictions. And so you hear this guy sitting there talking about wanting to be a good dad, talking about trying to comply with all this stuff, saying, I don't have any direction. I need somebody to help me. And instead of getting a shot, he got shot and now he's gone. And I just don't want it to be seen as one thing that happened to Wendy's or whatever. There's 4.5 million people in the country on probation and parole right now. There's too many people in prison. Everybody talks about mass incarceration. What about mass supervision? You got twice as many people on probation and parole, and it's, it, and it's a revolving door. They're having such a hard time getting off, even the ones who are trying hard. If you're on probation and parole, you're out there robbing cars or banks or selling drugs, bye-bye, back to prison. Nobody's arguing about that. I'm talking about the ones who are trying, who aren't committing any new crimes, but they just can't keep up with all these different rules and restrictions. And it's not a month, it's not a year, it's two, three, four, five years. And at some point they wind up making a mistake. And then even though it's not a crime, it's still a mistake, back to prison. That creates that desperation, which I think we've got to, got to get people uh, 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 calm down on. It's not helping anybody when people are that desperate. But in the system designed, because we're making so much money on prisoners, isn't the system designed to keep you in the system? Yes. See, then that's what nobody wants to talk about, Charles. We have an $80 billion a year incarceration industry. I don't call it mass incarceration, uh, as other progressives do. I call it incarceration industry. Let's just talk about it, what it is. And, and listen, eight per, only 8% of the prisons um, are private prisons outright making money. 
But the rest of them have so many big contracts, Charles. Uh, I mean, all the, the, the laundry services, the food services. I mean, everything in there is money. And so you, you have to have a certain number of human beings in there to make all that finance and all that economics work. Also, nobody wants to admit this, but let's be honest, in the 1990s, Democrats and Republicans were on board with this and said, hey, let's be honest, you got some small towns out there in rural America. These mills are shutting down because everything's going overseas. Economic development became put prisons out there in all those farming towns. And so now those farming towns have become prison towns. Democrats and Republicans were in favor of that. And in fact, Democrats said, and I'm a Democrat, strong Democrat, as you know, but you have to confess your own sins before you accuse somebody else. It was, our, it was the Democratic Party that decided uh, with Bill Clinton that you could be liberal on every issue as long as you were, quote unquote, tough on crime. As long as you were willing to be for the death penalty and build prisons and have tougher and tougher laws and three strikes and two strikes and all this sort of stuff, you could be liberal on the environment, you could be liberal on whatever else you want to do. Well, what did that mean? That means both parties came down with both feet on the poor black and brown communities. And you wound up crushing those neighborhoods, uh, over-policing, over-incarceration, and then building rural communities around prisons. And now we're trapped in this dynamic uh, that's going to be hard to get out of. But you're right. There's this economic development piece and money-making piece we never discussed. You know, you, you obviously plugged in. We're both Democrats. We've, we might not agree on everything. How disgusted are you with our whole political system has become right-wing, left-wing, uh, conservative, liberal, and I'm watching TV every day, and I'm like, did these two guys just argue for an hour on the same subject, and one was representing the right and one was representing the left? How frustrated are you with our whole political system? You know, I'm very frustrated. You know, I, I watched, you know, you and Ernie, you know, you guys are able to agree, disagree, still be friends, be constructive, bring people on, treat people with respect, keep the country held together through sports and, and conversation. Meanwhile, the political class is failing kindergarten, failing kindergarten in terms of just basic respect, sharing, listening, uh, looking for common ground. And, you know, I get beat up on both sides because, you know, I, I call it honest. If the Republicans do something bad, I say it's bad. But as, as this week, if Donald Trump does something good, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, for the first time I've seen in my life, had a bunch of police uh, come to his office and sign an executive order. It wasn't what I would have written, but it, was, it wasn't zero. It wasn't negative. And he said, hey, look, I want to see co-responders going alongside the police, not armed to talk somebody down rather than shoot somebody down. How am I as a Democrat gonna say that's bad? Uh, he's saying that he wants there to be a national registry of bad cops and he has the police behind him nodding their head. How am I as a Democrat gonna say that's bad? Now, do I want 20 more things? I sure do. But we can't give credit anymore to the two steps that your uh, so-called opponent took toward your direction. They've gotta take a hundred steps toward you. You take no steps toward them. That's, you can't get through kindergarten with that. And so, I mean, you can't. And so, yeah, I'm very frustrated. These calls, Van, to uh, defund the police, um, number one, 
how does that idea sit with you? And is it a question of defund the police versus reform the police? Or what am I missing? You know, this has become very delicate because the driving force for this whole conversation, getting to where it is, has been two things. One has been technology, these, these cell phones, these camcorders. But the other has been a new generation of mostly young black, uh, young people and their allies. And they say stuff different than I would say. Uh, and they come at it different than I would come at it. Uh, so I never try and speak for them. I do try to speak up for them. I think what they mean is so much, if you, and you gotta take it from their point of view now. If you're in your teens and 20s and you're looking at the way your city functions, the overtime budget for a lot of police departments is bigger than your whole youth uh, summer employment program. It's bigger than a lot of, so you're saying, wait a minute, why is so much money going to that and not going to help me? And so, they, so from their point of view, they're saying it's, just, it's not just the brutality, there's a mismatch on the money side that they want to see uh, addressed. Now, I wouldn't have said defund the police because I think when you say that, it sounds like you're saying you don't want them to have any money. Yeah. And then you're going to have, I mean, shoot, even, even the, the people marching want the police to arrest the bad cops. So even the people marching want some police. So. Yes. You know, even the people marching want the, the, the bad cops to go to jail. So they want some cops and some police. So but when you say defund, I think it lands badly. The other thing I think they miss, uh, though this may get corrected over time, and I would never lecture the next generation because I didn't want to be lectured when I was coming up. But they f may not have thought as carefully about the fact that a lot of police officers do not want to be asked to go into neighborhoods where there is nothing, to go into neighborhoods where... Uh, uh, the, 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 there's no social services, there's no counselors, there's no coaches, there's no social programs, and then the cops have to be the counselor, the marriage counselor, you know, when, they, when they're knocking on a door for domestic violence. They, they, they have to be the therapist for the homeless person who's freaking out. They have to do so many things that are not even about policing, they don't like it either. So there could be a, a, a coming together of this young generation in law enforcement to say, let's rebalance some of these functions, make your job easier, officer, but and have some real coaches and counselors and therapists that be employed. And we could have a, a community that's easier for you, officer, to be able to, to patrol, that you could have that conversation. That's me as an old guy, being born in 1968, I'm in my 50s, that's how I would say it. But I understand that when I was younger, I didn't say it that way, I didn't see it that way. So we're in this, we gotta co-author a way forward between this younger generation and those of us who who see it slightly differently and law enforcement and Republicans and Democrats. This slogan has created a lot of conversation, has created a lot of heat. Hopefully it creates some more light and we can move forward. That's how, that's, that's my delicate way of trying to handle, I think, a tricky slogan. Well, you said something really, and, and I'm trying to teach these young guys who are like, quote unquote, woke and all this other stuff. You said the word ally. Because I tell them, I said, guys, if y'all just want to take, 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 you're not building allies. You're alienating people. And it is a slippery slope. But I think we have to be really careful because I says we need allies. But I think we're really getting close to alienating a lot of people. That's my biggest concern. Hey, listen, um, this, the future has not been written. Uh, the crazy thing about 2020, you can tell. This is year that's going to be talked about 20 years from now, 100 years from now, the same way they talked about in 1968. There are so many things that have happened this year, and we're not even halfway through. 
there's still more of 2020 to get through than we've been through. And we've already had plagues, pandemics, quarantines, curfews, uh, you know, riots, uh, uh, murder hornets, uh, an impeachment, Kobe died. I mean, this year has been insane. Um, but I see it could go one way or the other. We could be on a pathway toward 10 American cities on fire by the end of the summer. If we keep having these videos and the government doesn't respond, uh, and now we're having people being lynched, actual lynchings. You've now seen four or five uh, uh, mysterious black men being literally hung by ropes, and nobody's talking about that. So you could be in a pathway toward 10 American cities on fire and a catastrophe. But I think it's if we work on it, it's more likely that we're going to wind up with us developing ways to listen to each other better. I'm hearing for the first time in my life, millions of white people coming and saying, hey, racism is much worse than I thought. The system is way worse than I thought. And then the key, what can I do? Now, black folks, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm tired of that. They should do that. Wait, wait. when have you ever seen 20, 30 million white Americans ask black Americans for leadership on a topic of any kind, let alone this? There is an opportunity for us, and I think you put it perfectly, do we want allies or alienation? Ally is a two-way street. We want respect, got to show respect. It's got to be a give and take. Alienation is very easy. Just tell everybody to go to hell. And, and when, and when, you, when somebody comes to the party and they want to be a part of it, you say, well, you late to the party. Why'd you even come? Where you been? You, that, okay, then they, when they leave the party, where are they going to go? They're probably going to go someplace you don't want them to go. So what people are coming toward us, I believe, let's open the door. Of course, it could be fatiguing to be asked to be the educator of, of a hundred white you know, people at work. You know, Google is a powerful tool. <laughs> you can suggest that they do some of their own homework. Um, so if you got to be the professor, do your homework. Um, but I believe that we have to make a decision in our heart, you know, as, as black folks, um, do we want revenge? Uh, to vent, do we want to vent? Do we want to be, have the opportunity to kind of demonstrate our frustration, which is righteous and which is maybe overdue? Is that enough? Or do we want results? Do we want these neighborhoods to work? Do we want to have a different relationship with cops so we can drive around and not feel like we're you know, uh, in danger all the time or our children are in danger? Um, I'm just more interested in results. That's just me. Nothing wrong with the crowd that wants to be, you know, that, listen, you know, rhetoric, great. Results. Uh, outrage, wonderful. Outcomes. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm focused on. And that requires a different mindset. I, um, if it's okay, can I read something, Chuck? I want to read something in Van, because I've been, um, I've been into this book, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. Highly recommend. And oh yeah, and so Van, you were born in '68. You were born a matter of months after Dr. King was assassinated. Yes, sir. And and five years after after the I Have a Dream speech. Yes. Um, and and what Robin DiAngelo writes. Which um, is one line of King's speech in particular that one day he he might be judged by the content of his character and not the color of his skin was seized upon by the white public because the words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend that we don't see race and racism will end. Color blindness was now promoted as the remedy for racism, with white people insisting that they didn't see race or if they did, that it had no meaning to them. 
Um, and I'll tell you, to the to the point you were making about never seen so many folks, especially white folks, trying to get educated and trying to I've I, I can't get through this book fast enough because and it has been one of these things, Chuck and Van, where I've read it and I've said, golly, I've said that before. And that's one of these that's one of these, you know, reasons that, oh, no, I'm not uh, I don't have a racist bone in my body because and it's like that doesn't cut it. And so when I when I listen to you talk, you and Chuck and I and I'm and I want to act, I want to help create results. You know, this is one step being educated about it. And the next is so. So how is there a place for me in the Reform Alliance? What do I do if somebody is listening to this and says, oh, that, yeah, that sounds like what Van Jones has got going on there. Sounds like I'm I'm all in. How do I? Yeah. How do I help on that? Well, first, I just say uh, the fact that you're reading White Fragility is very, very, very good. Uh, the fact that you can't find it anymore. I mean, they literally sold out. You cannot find a hard copy of that book on planet Earth right now. You have to get it on Kindle or you have to get it on, on the audio book or you have to borrow your friend's copy. Yeah. That is a very good thing because what it means is that there are so many people who want to get educated on this. Um, you know, and, and now listen, uh, you plant a seed, you don't have a tree tomorrow. Uh, it has to be cultivated. It has to, it takes time to develop. But um, the one thing I, I can say for sure is, as I said, Google is a powerful tool. Don't underestimate your ability to self-educate. Um, you know, God forbid if, if one of your children or one of your grandchildren on Monday, it was diagnosed, God forbid, with some kind of a rare cancer. Again, God forbid. Um, by Friday, you would be an expert, a world-class expert in that form of cancer. You would have read every book. You would have you would have looked at up to every expert. You'd have watched every YouTube video. You'd be bossing the doctors yeah. <laughs> by the end of the week because you would say, "Hey, hey on a second, this is critically important. It's a matter of life and death for me to understand this." Uh, you know, sometimes opportunities show up. You know, some new cryptocurrency. I got a lot of white friends in Silicon Valley. New cryptocurrency comes on the scene on Monday. They know everything about it on Friday. They, I mean. So Google is a powerful tool and people can learn very, very quickly when they feel motivated. Right now, people are feeling motivated. Um, and so whether it's the, the new Jim Crow or White Fragility or watching the 13th um, on Netflix or, or you know, watching all 10 episodes of Eyes on the Prize, you know, parts one and two with your family, which is, you know, designed by PBS to teach this stuff, Eyes on the Prize, the whole history. Um, you know, these are steps that people can take. And then I think once you learn, once you know better, you can do better. So then I think people always say, well, I want to go join some new organization or I want to go give money to this. Listen, there are great groups out there. But where you are right now is where you have the most power. Where you work, where you pray, where you play, that's where you have the most power. And I get along really well with, uh, as Chuck knows, with uh, uh, white Trump supporters. Uh, you know, I'm a Democrat. I've never voted for a Republican, never plan to. But I get along with them well because my my approach to them is simply say this. They, you know, they, like they see me coming. They see I'm black. <laughs> they know I work for Obama and they know I work at CNN. So they say, look, you know, and I tell them, I said, you probably would assume that I'm mad at you. And I would say you would be correct, but not for the reasons that you think. 
I'm mad at you because I need you. I'm mad at you because I need you. I cannot have the country I want without you. And here you are, good men, good women. You've raised good families. You've learned a skill or a trade. You know how to work a business. You're often in your houses of worship. You're the best neighbor anybody's ever had. And in your own state, maybe sometimes 30 minutes from here, there are kids going to bed hungry, some who have never met their fathers because their fathers are in a, in a grave or in prison. And where are you? We need you. You need those kids too, by the way, because those kids are magical and genius and amazing and they'll, they'll bring you back to life in a way you can't imagine. But they need you. These are American kids. You say you love America, you gotta love all Americans. It's all American kids. And most kindergartens now, I don't care where you are, most kindergartens now, you got a lot of black and brown kids, sometimes more than the white kids. We need you, we need each other. And when you respect people in that way, I'm not calling them out for what they haven't done. I'm calling them up based on their greatness to what they can do. And that creates an opportunity for us to come together. So where you, where you work, where you pray, where you play, where are the black people? Are they just working in the kitchen? Or, or, or pushing a mop, nothing wrong with that. All work is dignified, but how come they're not in the boardroom? How come they're not in the pipeline? It's not just the intellectual capital, it's the social capital that determines your access to financial capital. Everybody knows that. It's not just what you know, it's who you know that determines whether you're gonna get that job, that promotion, that introduction, that exposure, that chance to go to that convention. And so who are you mentoring? Who are you reaching out to? Um, and you say, well, shoot, I tried to do it. I don't know how I feel nervous. We got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And we got to have an equality of discomfort. Because if you're a person of color, especially at first, you know, Charles Barkley is comfortable wherever he goes. But younger Charles had to learn how to do that. He had to learn how to go play golf and go to different places. Somebody had to teach him that. You can't just, oh, well, be like Charles Barkley. Well, hell, if I had Charles Barkley's talent and mentorship, I might be Charles Barkley. But most people don't have that. So you have to then ask yourself the question, am I building that ladder? Am I, am, I, am I reaching out to that historically black college and calling that college president and saying, hey, send me some kids. I wanna be helpful. Am I reaching out to those black preachers, the TD Jakes of the world? Hey, I know you got some entrepreneurs that, and sitting in your pews that can't get access to market. I wanna help. That's the way that we begin and then, then now, it becomes natural because you can't talk bad about black folk down. They're my friends. I'm working. I see what they're going through. And it becomes something that becomes natural and becomes like everything else in America based on organic, you know, goodwill and good feeling. But I say, listen, the first step is getting educated. And, and, and I'm never going to blame anybody for trying to learn something about this situation who's white. Um, and then the next step is use the power you are right now. Oh, I don't know what group to support. What group are you in right now? Make that group more useful, and then we'll get somewhere. Am I wrong, Charles? You are correct, brother. I, one of the reasons I was, hey, listen, I, I told you, I, I, I admire you, I respect you. CNN is lucky to have you. And the thing that i glad people get an opportunity to hear you speak, because I, I think just like you, like, yo, man, I'm trying to, I need some results. I'm not going to get on here and yell and scream. I said, because we all are this thing together. We all, and I love the fact you say, hey, I got Republican friends. We don't agree on everything, but you know, I, not, we still got to make this thing work. We, we're not going no place after every, before every election. After this election, we're gonna do this and do that. And then after the election, the Republicans don't leave, the Democrats don't leave, 
Tuesday night, we vote against each other. Wednesday morning, we're all still in the same country. So what are we going to do? I'm a Wednesday morning guy. I love Tuesday night election. I get to be on TV. But Wednesday morning, what are we going to do? And if we don't have that Wednesday morning conversation, we're not going to have a country. Van Jones, uh, we have taken up exactly 30 minutes of your time, which is exactly what we said we would do. And um, we could go on all day long. And, and this has been have me back. tremendous. Hey, have me back. We're not done. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, oh, no. let's, let's keep talking. No, it's been it's been great having you. And and thank you so much for your insight and for uh, man, I've been jotting a lot of stuff down in here, man. And uh, <laughs> and I appreciate that. Well, it's it's a great awakening. Uh, those kids have been they, they talk about they woke. God bless them. I was woke before they had alarm clocks. But this, <laughs> <laughs> this is a great awakening for everybody. Uh, Please have me back. I appreciate you. Thank you, Charles. Any, thank you. Anytime, man. Thank you. Have a great weekend and enjoy your Father's Day, man. You too. Thank you. Back here uh, on the steam room as we wrap things up. And it's a combo meal in this final segment. Uh, I I knew I'd get your attention with that one, Chuckster. We've got, (laughs) not only do we have Chuck's answering machine, we've got the legendary longtime producer of Inside the NBA, Tim Kiley. TK, before we get to the answering machine, what's on your mind? You know the best parts of of the show inside of the NBA, as we like to call it, uh, are when uh, things get hijacked, especially when Chuck hijacks somebody else's segment. Like it's not one, two, one, it's one, two, three, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm taking over the uh, answering machine. I'm taking it from Chuck because Ernie got six messages on the machine this week. EJ, these are for you. Hey, Dadder, it is Carmen, your favorite Paraguayan. I just wanted to wish you a happy, happy Father's Day. I just want to thank you for the endless laughs, uh, the endless smiles, and the endless inspiration that you provide to us. Love you so much. Happy Father's Day to my father. I miss you so much. And I hope you're having a great time. Hey, this is Eric from Atlanta. Long-time steamer, first-time caller. <laughs> with uh, Father's Day around the bend, I've been trying to think about my favorite memories with my dad. And uh, I just keep going back to that, that time at Little League practice when he hit a 600-mile-an-hour line drive off my shoulder. Fond memories. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. I couldn't be more proud to call you dad. Oh, and uh, Happy Father's Day to you too, Chuck. Hey, Happy Father's Day. I miss you. Bye. Hey, Dad. Happy Father's Day. We are so proud. <laughs> That's not Dad. It's Poppy. Okay. Poppy, Happy Father's Day. We love you. We're so proud of you. And we can't wait to spend the next week at the beach cooking hot dogs and singing some original songs. Are we ready? Look at the trees and the leaves and the birdies. Look. Get the puppies in the clouds and sun. He is your grandpa. You can call him. Next week is going to be a lot of fun. <clears throat> Love you, Dad. Happy Father's no, Day, Chuck. No, okay, no. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I love you. 
Oh, that is awesome right there. I, I mean to tell you, I love that. that and, and that was a total secret. Nobody, nobody let on that any of that was going on. When I heard Carmen at first, I was like, what did Carmen somehow call TK by mistake? I want to, oh, I love that. Thank you so much. That makes my that makes my Father's Day weekend, right? That makes my segment too, because you you, lo- you had lost me when you described TK as legendary. <laughs> uh, that was going to be nice. You got the show back. That was awesome, man. I will be nice. We got another phone call. Go ahead, Cap. <laughs> Hi, Dad. It's Christiana. I'm calling to wish you happy Father's Day. I wanted to tell you that I love you very much, and I consider myself very lucky to have you as a dad. And I'm very excited that we'll be spending this weekend together and Father's Day. While I have you, I just thought I should remind you that I'm deep in the throes of wedding planning, and I'm really looking forward to sitting down, getting the budget figured out, and making some big decisions together. Love you, Dad. (laughs) Chuck, where do you oh. the budget? Hey, wow. you know, uh, that was awesome. You know, she went to Villanova and Columbia. And my conversation with her has been very simple. If you want a big wedding, you can have A or B. Not A and B. A or B. <laughs> you can have a big wedding, which is a waste of money. <laughs> or you can have a couple of parties and I give you a big chunk of money for a house and hopefully your kids' college tuition. And she says to me, let me think about it. And I says, think about what you got to think about. Mm. I says, you can waste money on a wedding or you can get to put down on a house and college tuition for your kids. So I'm starting to wonder, all that money I paid for Villanova, Columbia, they don't make them smart as they used to. Hey, you know how that's going to turn out, Chuck? Ernie, you're going to do you're going to do A and B. Ernie, it's A or B. It's no. not A and B. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're playing tough guy right now. Yeah. You wait until that day when she takes you by the arm and you walk down that aisle, which is an absolute. Uh, it's just off the charts that day. Uh, in in two ways, it's really exciting and and it's kind of like sad at the same time, but it's all awesome. So. Yeah, you're telling her A or B, and she knows right now, oh, it's okay. It's going to be A and B. Yeah. <laughs> Ernie, there's a, there's a C and a D in there, too, somewhere, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When's it, yeah, they're, when's they're, it, they're always on the payroll. When's it going to happen, Chuckster? When's, is there a date? I don't think they have a date yet. I'm going to find that out this weekend. Okay. Yeah. Well, that'll be a great way to spend Father's Day weekend, seeing where, yeah. your, where your hard-earned money is at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, got, got to work till I die, Ernie, apparently. Yep. Apparently. Uh, hey, TK, that was great, man. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, Thanks that for, was uh, all Cap. That was all yeah. Cap. Okay, Cap, I knew. Listen, it took him 22 shows to make an impact on his, on the steam room. Way to go, Cap. Yeah. So to Eric and Maggie and Michael and Carmen and Ashley and Allison, uh, thank you for that. That was a wonderful Father's Day present and i am uh i'm the one who's honored to be uh to be your dad so 
Thank you much. What a great way to end the show, man. That was That's a great awesome. way to end the show. I'm, I'm honored. I tell all the time, I'm honored to be Chris Dallas' dad. She's an amazing kid. Uh, so that was awesome, guys. Thank you. We got a 23rd episode off, Ernie? Yeah, I'm going to be, as, as you know, I'm going to be uh, decompressing. I'm taking the week off. Gonna have my toes in the sand. So, um, you have a great Father's Day too, TK. Yeah, TK, have a great Father's Day. And Ernie, please make sure when you send me a picture, please don't ever send me a picture where you got your shirt on again. (laughs) Yeah, I was just trying to show you how I was doing last year after surgery. So, uh, I think you liked the second one better. (laughs) I I, I was like, I'll fill in before you have it on the second. You might say, in that steam room, somebody wasn't wearing a towel. Anyway, for the 22nd edition of the Steam Room, we appreciate you listening to all you loyal steamers. Uh, You know, spread the word. We may move from second most popular in the history of media to the most popular podcast in the history of media. It's all up to y'all. This is EJ. That's Chuck. That's TK. See y'all. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.